This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, the Transfer Market is in a strange flux where left-backs and not strikers appear to be the most precious commodity. We bring you the latest on two of the most in demand, Kieran Tierney and Alexandro. There's much to discuss at Manchester United, from Paul Pogba's storming World Cup to the future of Luke Shaw, we give you a glimpse into the Old Trafford Club's thinking process. Ronaldo's move to UV has triggered attempts to replace their Premier Galactico. Chelsea fans might want to close their ears for the latest. Manchester City have lost out on first Fred and now Jorginho to their Premier League rivals. What's behind the champions' failure to secure their top targets? So the World Cup is over and while the transfer window is sad to see it go, now the real transfer business begins so we can celebrate and... It's not strikers that are setting the transfer market alight. It's actually left-backs. Duncan, tell us more. Aye, well, we've talked about this a few times. There's, there's a lot of demand for left-backs in, the, um, in the current market because there aren't many, very many good ones around. And, um, and one, of these, one of the left-backs who is in demand is Celtic's best young player, Kieran Tierney. Um, we talked a couple of weeks ago that about um, Everton making a uh, financial offer to Tierney to to join them um, under the new manager Marco Silva. Um, that deal uh, subsequently fell through, and the reasons it fell through is because of the importance and the value of left backs at the moment. Um, when Everton opened discussions with Celtic for Tierney, um, Celtic asked for a transfer fee of thirty million pounds. Um, not only did they want £30 million, which Everton felt was extremely high for a player coming from the Scottish Premier League, um, they weren't prepared to compromise on the, um, the staging of the payments. Usually in a deal like that, they would be broken down over the, the course of a contract or in terms of uh, reducing the payments and, and taking on a sell-on, um, on it, which is something Celtic have done with um, previous transfers to England. So... Um, so Everton pulled out, and uh, I've gone on to uh, other other targets um, at left back. They're, they've been uh, in discussions with Barcelona for their um, French left Lucas Digne. Um, but I can understand why Celtic are pricing Tierney so high, not just because of his importance to the team and and how difficult it, it's going to be from a public relations perspective if they sell. Um, you know, a Celtic fan, 
um, who has such a future ahead of him this summer, but also because they know that other clubs are interested and bigger clubs um, than Everton are interested. They know Manchester United have been scouting the player for a long time and their admiration for Tierney is only growing. Um, they're not sure that United will bid, but they know that United um, have a problem getting Alexandro uh, from Juventus, the number one choice, because Juventus are pricing Alexandro at um, 60 million euros. Um, they may also be aware that Juventus have been watching Kira, Kieran Tierney themselves for some time and considering Tierney as a potential replacement should they uh, get the fee they want for Alexandro. So you've got this kind of network of, of deals going on and the clubs that possess left backs of a certain quality that the, the bigger sides are trying to get, pricing them up at a level we've never seen before um, for a player in that position. I think also, uh, Duncan, this is a great example of um, what happens when um, when one transfer happens or doesn't happen and affects another. People call it a merry-go-round in terms of transfers because one player moves, another one gets on the carousel, etc., etc. It's more like cause and effect. So A happens affecting B, and because B's happened, it affects C and D and, and on and on. And of course, one of the core um, causes of this particular chain reaction or catalyst is Luke Shaw's refusal to even consider Everton as a destination. Everton were very keen on Shaw. They thought they could get him a knockdown price uh, compared to the money that Manchester United paid for him four years ago. There's obviously a player in there somewhere. If someone's, uh, some manager is able to find it, uh, Shaw himself has said, no, I will see at the remaining year of my contract to Manchester and leave it a free and battle for my place at Manchester United rather than move anywhere else, which has forced Everton to go back to Tierney having originally the, him being their first choice, and now consider Celtic's asking price of £30 million. And by the way, I, as much as people say, I don't believe £30 million is overpriced for Kieran Tierney. You're talking about a guy with Champions League experience here, which, you know, that's most left-backs, a lot of left-backs that are being banded around for, for as much money or, or a little more, don't have that. And of course, the, the problem for Manchester United is not just getting rid of Shaw, but they don't want to meet um, Juventus asking price for Alexandro, although now that Cristiano Ronaldo has signed for Juventus, and of course the investment in him of £93 million transfer fee plus £24.8 million per annum salary, Sandro's one of the players that they'd be willing to sell. So it may well be that Jose Mourinho gets his, his own first choice, which would be Sandro, and Duncan has rightly reported this for more than eight months now, that he is a number one target for Mourinho because he can play not just left back, but on the left side of, the, of, a, of a four in central defence, which would then again, have this cause and effect that I discussed earlier and said, therefore, Tierney would become uh, an elemental uh, and necessary purchase for Everton. And now, these are the things that we're going to see happen in the next three weeks because, of course, the English Premier League has imposed its own early deadline uh, for the transfer window to close, which is before the start of the season on August 11th. So we're in a very hot period now of three weeks. Now that the, uh, the World Cup's over, Negotiations can take place without any hurdle or obstacle regarding where players are, their agents are, or where their club presidents are, etc., etc. So, Tierney, I think, I still believe, is I think 50-50 will be leaving Celtic by the end of the, the transfer window, and the English Premier League will be his destination. Yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right, Ian. I think the the early transfer window for the Premier League is a big factor here. Um, Alexandro, we can talk about his case. Um, 
Juventus, I, they don't actively want to sell the player, but they're prepared to sell the player because they see the price is so high that they can cash in in a big way. They now have, on top of Manchester United's interest, and Manchester United have agreed personal terms in advance with Alexandro because he, he's not particularly well paid at Juventus, so it's been easy to convince them we can get, get, you know, double your salary if you come to us uh, and push for the move. But on top of that Manchester United interest, Juventus now have interest from Paris Saint-Germain because Paris Saint-Germain are also desperate for a top-quality left-back. They've also uh, been discussing terms with Alexandro, also prepared to pay more. So Juventus know they've got these two big suitors um, and, and a, r a real strong possibility of not getting the whole 60 million euros, but getting a good percentage of it. But Manchester United are a major disadvantage here in that, one, they haven't been able to... Uh, get Luke Shaw out the door, which has been the plan for a long time. So they they have an additional player stuck in their squad and his salary of a uh, um, five million pounds a year to deal with, and the threat that he will leave under freedom of contract in a year's time, which they want to avoid. But they also have three weeks less to get the deal through um, through the door, because the Premier League have have handicapped themselves by saying we want all transfer business. Um, into the Premier League, not out, but into the Premier League finish before the season kicks off, which means that if Manchester United want Alexandro, they're going to have to bid and get it done earlier than Paris Saint-Germain. And Paris Saint-Germain, on the other hand, can, can wait and see if, if United fail to, to make that offer and know that that makes them the only, or likely will be the only suitor for Alexandro once Manchester United are out of the picture. And they can probably calculate that they'll get a discount from Juventus in the final three weeks of the season if Juventus still um, decide that Sandro and the offer they make for them is worthwhile selling to get some of the money back. They need to fund the, the very expensive Cristiano Ronaldo deal. And how is... Um, Kieran Tierney's Italian, Duncan. <laughs> Have you not been giving him lessons, Ian? You're the, you're the Italian. <laughs> mm, you know, uh, I would like to just divulge that after the flack we got the last time we said Kieran Tierney might be sold. But, you know, you did. Uh, you have mentioned that the Juventus have watched Tierney on a couple of occasions just in case they lose Alexandro. So, I mean, you know, what an amazing transfer that would be, even if it's unlikely. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you, you know you, you highlight an important point. If if you're Kieran Tierney and you have the choice of where you're going, and you have English Premier League options, or Juventus, which directions you go in? Because the move to Italy is probably going to be a harder one from the personal point of view. Um, if he hasn't been studying studying um, well with you in those, those little Italian lessons you've been arranging for the last few months. Um, <laughs> as opposed to staying nearer to home and, and moving to a league that he, he probably knows better from watching it. But then, on the other hand, the, the opportunity to to potentially go to Juventus and be part of that team they're building, and they are going to retain most of their talent. The, the, you know, the plan here with signing Cristiano Ronaldo is to win the Champions League. So Allegri is counting on keeping Dybala, um, using Douglas Costa on the right wing, Cristiano Ronaldo, and even keeping Mario Mandzukic, who has also been a, um, a potential target for Manchester United in his attack. So you're looking at an incredible, potentially incredible team there. And, you know, 
if a player is offered the opportunity to join that, maybe maybe that's an opportunity you should be seriously thinking about taking. Well, it'd be remiss of us not to mention a left back that has left Manchester United, uh, which is Daley Blint. Uh, he's on his way to Ajax in a deal that, well, it's frankly quite astonishing. Manchester United are going to make a profit on a player. He's had a pretty uneven spell. Duncan, what do you make of it? Um, I'm surprised, actually. Like you, I'm surprised they managed to get such a big transfer fee for a player um, who has been you know, halfway or, or most of the way in the exit door as far as Jose Mourinho is concerned um, for the past two seasons. Daley Blint only played 361 minutes in the Premier League last season. Um, which tells you that uh, Josie was trying to encourage his exit for quite a while. I mean, you called him a left-back. I actually don't think Daley Blind is a left-back. Um, and I think part of the reason he has struggled at Manchester United is he spent most of his time playing either left-back or centre-back, um, neither of which are his, uh, his natural positions. I've got a good friend at Ajax who... Um, told me to watch out for Daley Blind uh, before he moved to England um, and he he always insisted that Daley's best position was in midfield and I think that's probably where he's going to end up playing. Uh, back at Ajax, and he'll be, he's certainly going to be a central part of, uh, of the team they're building there. They've, they've paid 16 million euros guaranteed, um, which was what they wanted to pay in total. Manchester United managed to squeeze another four and a half million euros um, of performance-related bonuses on top of that. Um, it's a very good bit, piece of business for United, and it does open up some squad space. Um, we'll, what they need also to do, as we say, it'd be great if they could manage to get Luke Shaw out and properly strengthen that position. And they're also trying to get Matteo Darmian out. Um, but a lot of work to be done. I suppose they, they they have the advantage in a sense of the of the extra weeks of the transfer window to, to get probably Darmian out because his most likely destination will be Italy. Um, it doesn't look to me like they're going to manage to convince Shaw to go um, from what from all the all the, the soundings around him at present. So Luke Shaw has this opportunity to prove his fitness um, and try and work his way into the team. Um, it should be noted that Ashley Young is just coming back from the World Cup and will probably get a three-week break. So perhaps Luke Shaw will then have the opportunity to start in the Premier League this season. And um, you're looking at that genuinely as a, as a, as a last chance for him to, um, to convince Jose Mourinho that he can focus, keep himself fit, learn how to defend properly, um, properly contribute to the team's attack through um, a sustained period of games rather than you know, occasional flashes of, uh, of, of form that kind of approximates what you'd expect from the £30 million transfer fee they paid for him four years ago now. Yeah, Duncan makes a good point. I think um, all Premier League clubs now, they must register 25 players, including five homegrown. Um, before uh, the Premier League starts. And so getting rid of the Deadwood in your 25 and clearly Daley Blind and Matteo Germain probably as well comes into that for Manchester United. Um, and also they don't count as homegrown. So again, getting them out so as you get them that extra space for foreign players uh, who will arrive is very important. Fred's already arrived from Manchester United and will take up one of those spaces. So it, it's an interesting um, kind of... Let's just say there's, there's got to be a lot of wheeling and dealing now because 
coaches are looking at the 25 spaces in their, in their team, they probably have, you know, realistically, 17 or 18 who they know are it's filled and that those will be coming back. Um, some will have a little bit more than that. But you're looking at, you know, the, again, this trading process of having to balance your squad in order to get the right 25 on that um, delivery note to the Premier League before August 11. So it's um, it's going to be very interesting, as I said, three weeks, because we have this very short time now to, to get these deals done. And Manchester United, uh, we know that Jose Mourinho is not happy with his defence. He's um, He's been unhappy uh, or certainly inconsistent in the way he's chosen um, his front three or his front four, if you want to call it that as well. Lukaku's had a good World Cup. Uh, we'll come back, I think, more confident than ever. Uh, Martial's position still looks to me to be a little bit um, sketchy. But then you've got Marcus Rashford, who I think will have enjoyed the experience with England and may well be a starter for Mourinho next season. And then um, I have to say, and introduce this part of the conversation, but everyone and their granny seems to be telling Jose Mourinho that he should learn from Didier Deschamps. This is how to get the best out of Paul Pogba because he had a great World Cup, scored obviously in the final. And I'm just thinking, yeah, Jose Mourinho is just that kind of guy who's going to be told by you know, pundits, commentators, etc., etc., that this is how you get the best out of Paul Pope. And I believe, Duncan, that actually that might have been the inverse of the truth. Is that correct? Well, I think it was an interesting comment by William Gallus um, uh, during the World Cup, the latter stages of the World Cup. And he said... Talking about Paul Pogba, he said, Jose Mourinho changed his style of play. When he dropped him, Pogba was forced to question himself. When he came back, his style had changed. Um, so that's, you know, William Gallus, <laughs> very uh, distinguished French international, um, who I think played with Didier Deschamps. And what I do know is that Deschamps and Mourinho had quite extensive conversations about Pogba during the period of the season where um, the, there was a considerable amount of conflict between Pogba and Raiola on one side and Mourinho on the other, um, Pogba demanding he play in a certain position on the left-hand side of a midfield three and have less defensive duties, etc., 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 and, and, you know, a major problem for United during the season. Um, Mourinho talked to Deschamps then, and, and from what I understand, Deschamps was very sympathetic because he had essentially the same issue to deal with and also did not want to reshape his, his midfield into the system that Pogba wanted and, and didn't do that. I mean, France did not play with a, a three-man midfield and Pogba on the, the left-hand side. They played a conservative system where Pogba played quite far back but was able to combine defensive duties with the kind of quality of of, of long pass that he, we saw him hit in the World Cup final um, to set up his own goal in that final. Um, and I think it bodes well for his career um, that he is clearly knuckled down in, in the, the, for the cause of France at the World Cup um, and seen the success that that's brought. You don't get any more successful than winning the World Cup, being a central part of that team. So if he recognises that and if Mourinho is able to use that um, as a lesson to him and a, as, a, as a base in which to say, look, you've done it for France, you've won the World Cup playing that way, go and do it for Manchester United because you know you're capable of it, then we, can, we, we may well start to see the best of Paul Pogba 
um, just as a natural evolution of the player um, developing and, and, and learning that football doesn't have to be set out the way you want it to be set out just because at one point in your career you, you were the most expensive, uh, uh, you had the most expensive transfer fee of all time against your name. And also, Duncan, I think what was important um, during the World Cup in terms of the fact that he played in a double pivot, essentially, alongside Conte, and, uh, you know, he plays with Matic at Manchester United. Now, those two players are very similar in their style and what their role and job is to do, allowing Pogba to, to go forward when he, when he wants or needs to or can see the, op- the, pro- the, um, the possibility. And the pass that he provided, that diagonal pass, um, which he then followed up to get his goal. I think it was Pavard, the right back, who, who took the pass. Um, and then the ball eventually comes to him and he plays a one-two the defender and strikes him with his left foot. I think this could be, you know, a, a kind of epiphanical moment in Pogba's career winning the World Cup. I think part of his problems at Manchester United last season were caused by some, a, a deep-seated insecurity about his status as the most expensive player in the world or what, whatever it was. When in fact, of course, his his whole personality, stroke reputation, stroke um, ebullience is all about. I'm the very best at everything I do, and you know, no one can touch me because I'm Paul Pogba. Blah blah blah. I think maybe the World Cup will be a, a catalyst for him. It's confirmed to him that he is as good as he thinks he is. He's a world champion, and he goes back to one of the biggest clubs in the world as a world champion, playing in the position which his manager wants him to play in. And we'll now see the best of him in the Premier League. So all this nonsense about, you know, le- look and learn Jose Mourinho, I think will be the, the opposite. It will be Mourinho getting the best out of Pogba because, as you've said, um, he had the conversation with Deschamps and Deschamps um, had a conversation with Pogba. And now Pogba believes in himself in that position. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that pans out. because I, th- I think it will be very positive for Manchester United. Credit to Ian McIlvany McBookie McGarry for his epiphanical uh, worth they are getting that into the transfer window podcast. Always to be congratulated. <laughs> it wasn't no one, no one, no one volunteered or dared me. To, I, I can guarantee it. I'm <laughs> currently googling it. Um, so, well, another player that had a fantastic World Cup is obviously Kylian Mbappe, voted the young player of the tournament, and another one that we have some news on Ian. Yeah, um, we've we've discussed in detail Mbappe's um, slightly odd contractual uh, situation because clearly um, as a a means to avoid FFP um, uh, complications for Paris Saint-Germain. They very cleverly alone, uh, arranged a loan deal from Monaco for last season, having spent €220 million uh, euros on Neymar. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, uh, as we know, with Real Madrid as to the legitimacy of that contract and whether or not it could be usurped by Madrid themselves. They could come in and they could pay the same fee or even a, a bigger fee to Monaco um, in order to get Mbappe to the Santiago Bernabeu rather than staying in Paris Saint-Germain. However, I'm speaking to contacts uh, very close to PSG. My information is that that um, arrangement that they have currently with um, Monaco uh, must be uh, taken up on July 30th, so uh, just you know a few days from now, and that PSG are fully committed to paying the fee to Monaco and that Mbappe himself is fully committed to staying in Paris next season and playing alongside Neymar. And I think as well, this will be helped immeasurably by, I think, the euphoric and celebratory scenes that we've seen in Paris uh, 
uh, over the last few days uh, since the squad returned with as world champions. And my uh, information is that Mbappe himself has been overwhelmed by the support that he's received as the sort of main striker, if you like, the attacking fulcrum of the France national side. And the decision that he made to not join Real Madrid last summer will maintain his uh, loyalty to Paris Saint-Germain again this summer. He wants to stay at the club uh, and that leaves Real Madrid with a massive headache having sold their best player, Cristiano Ronaldo, to Juventus and Mbappe was second on their list of players to replace Ronaldo, Neymar being the first. Uh, I think Duncan are in agreement that it would be very difficult to get Neymar out of PSG this summer. I think it's now equally difficult to get Mbappe out and so, Duncan, um, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I mean, who's next on the list for, for Madrid? They've got to do something. Yeah, I think, I think you're 100% right about Mbappe. There was a period in which Qatar were considering um, selling Mbappe to, to Madrid or another suitor in Manchester City, very strongly interested, as they had been last summer, um, as a means of, of uh, adhering to FFP if they needed to. But I think the World Cup has, has, has binned all of that. Um, apart from anything else, they now have, as you say, a hero of, of the, the French national team in place in Paris, central to their squad. Uh, it gives them flexibility. Um, where Neymar to push again for a move this season and leave in a year's time, they can, you know, the, the, you, you see Mbappe developing this season into potential Ballon d'Or candidate if he has a, a great season and then and then if you have someone like Mbappe or in your team then maybe it becomes easier to to move Neymar out. Um, also his commercial value has increased immensely with with that success in France and with the uh, um, being voted the, the young player of, of the, the tournament and, and the sort of you know the, the, there'd always been a sense I think amongst football experts that this this guy was going to be the, the next great player but now you see it commonly spoken after the, the World Cup performances, especially with um, Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo leaving the tournament so early. And commercial revenue is important to um, Qatar and to PSG for um, FFP purposes. So you know, the, one of the, one of the things they talk about retaining Neymar for is we, they can they can make commercial income on him. If they can make more commercial income on Mbappe, then you definitely hold on to him. From Real Madrid's point of view, yeah, it's two uh, big um, black marks on the um, on the recruitment list, and you end up going down to third, fourth choices, and and it seems the third choice is Eden Hazard. Um, Hazard is a player who they have they've been talking to for years and discussing as a potential next Galactico, but never actually. Um, done anything concrete about it in terms of making a bid to Chelsea or even properly preparing Hazard um, for, to, to fight for the move. You, I think you see now that they are preparing Hazard to fight for the move and Hazard has, has started talking um, on several occasions publicly about being interested in leaving the club and basically said that Real Madrid is the club he wants to go to. His contract situation is such that Chelsea will be forced to make a decision. He, he has told Chelsea he doesn't want to sign a new contract. He's got two years left. Chelsea want to cash in on him. This is the, the summer to do it. Um, and I, I think Chelsea do want to cash in on him. I think uh, Chelsea think they can get, uh, well, they, they, they're intimating that they value him at £200 million. 
um, the same level as Neymar. I don't think they can get that money from Real Madrid. One of the reasons I, I think Madrid will fail to pay that kind of money is I'm, I'm not entirely convinced Madrid have as big a budget to spend this summer as we'd expect. Um, they have a, a big stadium project, a, a renewal project at Santiago Bernabeu, which is priced at 400 million euros. That has to be funded. Obviously, they have the money from Cristiano Ronaldo coming in, but their wage bill has been high. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo's wages reduce it a bit. If you bring an Eden Hazard and a Thibaut Courtois in the summer, it's the other, other Chelsea player they're targeting, that will take up a good chunk of, of Ronaldo's saved wages. Um, Thibaut Courtois, very interesting situation. Um, again, even more uh, difficult for Chelsea in that he only has one year left on, on his contract. Um, has told the club he will not sign a new contract. Wants to move to Madrid. Um, hadn't been sure that Madrid had actually put anything in process through the summer. Been very dubious about that and kind of concerned that there, there wasn't a real possibility he could move. From what I hear from the people close to him in the last couple of weeks, that's changed and he thinks the deal is viable. Um, and, I think, and he's waiting to see if Madrid make the offer to Chelsea so he can um, force Chelsea's hand on that transfer. The transfer window is looking for a new sponsor. A deal would put your company at the top of our show and expose your brand to the thousands of transfer window listeners. If this is something that appeals, please get in touch via the usual channels on social media. And, and even more um, <clears throat> grist to the mill, if you want to call it that, Duncan, um, I'm told by people close to David De Gea that um, he has had a summer of upset because um, Madrid have not been in touch with him or with George Mendes, his agent, regarding a move to to uh, the Spanish capital, a move that he has coveted and almost completed, remember? Um, and in fact, his, it may be the case that his, even his performances in um, Russia were affected by that. He has a, a new, very, very well-paid contract offer on the table for Manchester United, which... Um, has uh, been reported as being signed several times, but uh, but has not actually been signed yet. I think that may be the next step for De Gea, which is simply to to sign the new deal with uh, with United. Again, that suggests that Courtois will be moving to Santiago Bernabeu. Massive headache for Mitchell Sarri, the new manager of Chelsea. How do you replace Courtois? He's got nothing in reserve, which even suggests that they can fill that uh, that position from within. And now um, they're faced with, you know, they could sell Courtois for maybe 55, 60 million pounds, but you're not getting much change out of that to buy a new goalkeeper of that same calibre. But perhaps, Duncan, there's um, a cheaper option on the table? Yeah, they've been talking um, with Kasper Schmeichel's representatives um, about a potential move. Um, I understand that they have, they have two... Um, options for goalkeeper, strong options for goalkeeper, which is Alison Becker, the Brazil goalkeeper at Roma. They've had discussions with Roma. There's a question of whether those discussions were trying to find out how serious Madrid were about Alison, um, because obviously Madrid had taken Alison, that partially solved the Courtois problem for them. But Alison Becker would be a much more expensive um, buy. Uh, Roma are, are talking about a 70 million euro transfer fee. Uh, Schmeichel probably going to cost £20 million from Leicester City. I understand that Schmeichel is keen on the move. 
um, interest to English Michaels, also of of interest to Roma, who've had some opening discussions with his representatives in case they lose Alison. So you've got this a triangular uh, move going on. But for I think you, what you you mentioned about De Gea is, is is a very valid point in that if Real Madrid buy Courtois this summer, that essentially closes the door um, for David De Gea uh, to Real Madrid indefinitely because uh, Courtois is what twenty six years old, I think. So yeah. If he goes back to Real Madrid, Real Madrid are signing a player who, if he plays to the level you'd expect from him, and and I would note he's had an exceptional World Cup. And it's, I don't think it's any coincidence he's had an exceptional World Cup because he knew that he was, in a sense, playing for a move, um, and playing for that move that he wanted to Real Madrid. If he plays to that level, once he moves there, he's going to be the Real Madrid goalkeeper for the next decade, which means Davidea is not going to Real Madrid any time, um, probably for his entire career, which is, of course, great news for Manchester United because he has been their best player for the last, what, five seasons. You've touched on uh, Maurizio Sarri there, obviously Chelsea's new manager, and his first signing was uh, Italian international Jorginho. Uh, it's a £57 million move, and one of the noses of Manchester City, who have now lost two major targets in Fred and uh, Jorginho to Premier League rivals. How, what do we put that down to, Ian? Well, this is, this, is, um, this is a fairly normal transaction in terms of when a coach leaves one club to join another, he takes as one of his most trusted lieutenants with him. Someone he's obviously dealt with for uh, in the dressing room, who who he knows will um, perform for him, who has performed for him, who he can use as a, as a kind of olive branch or even you know a, 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 a intermediary to his new players and say, look, I'm I'm bringing this guy with me because he's he's exceptional. And um, every manager going at a new club needs someone in the dressing room who he can trust to come back to him with what the chat is and the gossip and everything else. Now, I'm not in any way demeaning Jorginho's talent by saying that uh, exclusively this is why he's been bought by Chelsea. I think it's just been the kind of normal welcome to Chelsea present that you often get um, uh, when you join as manager. You, you, you get to choose your first player. You don't get to choose any, anyone after that. So they, they kind of lull you into this false sense of security that you're in charge of transfers because you brought your, uh, your your top guy in and then um, the transfer committee take over after that. And of course, that's one of the reasons why Antonio Conte now finds himself uh, unemployed. So um, Sari says that, um, rather interestingly, he's one or two adjustments, he said. Well, if Courtois leaves and Hazard may leave, I think that suggests that that's an underestimate on his part. But um, to go back to your point about uh, Manchester City losing on two targets, Johnny, yes, I do find it interesting that... Um, They've been unable to close deals either for Fred or for Jorginho. I think that's partly to do with the fact that their squad is actually very strong anyway. You know, they've lost Yaya Toure, but then he he played one Premier League game last season. And with Fernandinho um, in the centre there, who is in the prime of his career and had an outstanding season last year, if I'm a central midfielder going to Manchester City, then I ask myself, am I going to start? Or how many games am I going to play? And it may be that they're... um, they're experiencing um, with Fred and with Jorginho the effect of, well, these guys are Premier League winners, so how am I going to break into that team, break into that, you know, not the squad obviously break into that team? Now, interestingly, they, they, they have certainly made an offer to Real Madrid um, for uh, Mateo Kovacic um, and 
that has been apparently priced out by the £80 million request, which I do think is ridiculous as well for a player who has not been a regular in the Real Madrid first team. But again, um, Real are looking to at least get a lot of money in so that they can then spend a lot of money given their, as we've already spoken about, their pursuit of Galacticos and Courtois, Hazard, etc. etc. So um, they signed £60 million over to Leicester City for um, Riyad Mahrez, which again we is no big surprise given the, the, the moves they made from in January um, of this year in the transfer window. I still think that that's an overpaid uh, sorry, an overprice for a player who I don't think is guaranteed a place in starting eleven either. But they're obviously prepared to do that because Pep Guardiola wants the you know the very best options um, for next season. What I think City will need to do, and it's you know what every champions of the Premier League have had to do success in successive years, is up the quality in their squad and up their game for that second season challenge of retaining and defending the Premier League title. So far, from what I can see, City in the signing of Mahrez have not done that. So I would not be surprised to see City go out and spend fairly heavily on a, another central midfielder um, before the window closes in three weeks' time. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's an interesting situation because I think you're absolutely right, Ian, the Manchester City squad doesn't need much in the way of upgrades, um, already extremely strong, already well, no one spent as much in their squad as Manchester City have, so the, you should have a lot of talent there. Um, they've been quite surgical in terms of identifying positions to prioritise and improve this season. Um, I think they, I agree with you, I think they overspent in Rihad Mahrez. Um, Fred, they were uh, looking to do in January, but they weren't prepared to, to meet the pay the release clause that was the only way they were going to get them out of Shakhtar at the time. Um, then uh, moved their preference to Jorginho, which allowed Manchester United to get Fred in the summer. Um, and they've kind of been uh, caught out, I think, um, by Sarri's move to Chelsea and then Sarri insisting on, on taking Jorginho with them. And I think that it's very understandable, not just in, in terms of having someone in the dressing room he can trust. I think the, the kind of football that Sarri plays is extremely different from the way Conte had the team set up. Um, he, he's moving to that you know, Manchester City model of uh, trying to control the opposition um, by controlling the ball, pressing them high immediately in, in the opposite side of the field. So it, it's, it's kind of the antithesis of what Chelsea have been playing. And if you're going to uh, overhaul a team's um, identity in the fashion that he wants to do with a not brilliant squad to start with, then you definitely want to have a midfielder who, who knows exactly how you want to play and can demonstrate and lead um, your new players in, in doing that. So it makes sense from their perspective. It makes sense from Chelsea's perspective. I'm going to say, oh, we, we bought them, we put the money down, we put a big transfer fee on, on the table for our new manager. From a public relations perspective, that looks good. Um, ironically, it's a fraction of the money they're expecting to take from selling their best attacking player, Eden Hazard, and their, be and their best defensive player, Thibaut Courtois, in the next few weeks. So um, it's kind of a, a false economy, but it looks good at the moment. I think Manchester City are also conscious 
of the reputation as big spenders. Um, what you do see when deals fall down is the club briefing about how much other teams were prepared to pay the players in salary and how much they were um, prepared to pay in transfer fees. So when Alexis Sanchez, who they almost signed in the summer at huge expense, went to Manchester United, they were very eager to, to tell any journalist who wanted to ask them about it um, how much uh, Alexis Sanchez had asked in addition to what they were prepared to pay in the summer um, and cite that as a reason why they weren't prepared to go there. Um, and, I, and also they held off on Riyad Mahrez for those reasons in, in January. So I think there's an element of, of being, being slightly more careful with their, their money spend and it, it suiting them when things go wrong to say, well, we don't always outbid everyone else. Look, we're not, we're not the big bad bully all the time. Occasionally other clubs take players and pay them more money than we do. But I think you're right. They do still... I think um, Pep Guardiola really wants that position strengthened. Um, there was a lot of demand on Fernandinho last season, um, who I think is well, in his third. It's interesting, time. Duncan, that he played Kevin De Bruyne there, didn't he? Um, on several occasions, well, more than several occasions in the double pivot. He couldn't rely on Yoko Gundogan because of injury at Obsessor, but he came in back at the end of the season as well. Gundogan, I think, would probably be the starting partner for Fernandinho um, in three weeks' time in the, in, the, um, in the Community Shield. But he doesn't have, I don't think, a plethora of players who he can trust at experiential level to come in and do a job, which is hence why he's been chasing people for that position. And also, while well, Fernandinho has a brilliant season last season, he's, he's over 30 now. I think they're looking at a long-term successor with a younger player coming in. But um, the fact is those players are in short supply. And it's interesting that they've now lost out on two. Um, and who they actually do get in is, is going to be very interesting as well because I don't think necessarily they're going to be of the level which Guardiola would have liked. Well, look, the midfield is fundamental to the way they play. If you look at the midfield three he played for most of last season, it was Fernandinho over 30, David Silva over 30, Kevin De Bruyne, peak of his career. But Kevin De Bruyne is just coming back from a long World Cup campaign. Um, Fernandinho didn't play every game for Brazil, but he, he lasted quite long into the tournament. Um, David, David Silva is not getting any younger. He clearly needs another player of, of quality who he can trust to play either as an alternative to Fernandinho, either in the, if he wants to change the system slightly and use a double pivot alongside Fernandinho, or to give David Silva rest. And I don't think he's going to be happy going into the season where he's expected to win the Champions League. The pressure from Abu Dhabi now is win the Champions League. That's what we spent all this money on. We, we know you want to avoid and you, you talk down the idea that you're expected to win the Champions League, but that's the undercurrent of the club. And to do that, it's the same as Antonio Conte last season. If you want me to win the Champions League, give me a squad with enough components to do it. And I don't think his squad is well, it's capable of doing it, but it's, it's under pressure given the, the demands he places on players if he doesn't get reinforcement in that position. OK, well, it's now time for our legendary quickfire round. 
And today we are going to give you the Transfer Window Podcast Team of the World Cup. So I'm going to first of all ask Duncan for the goalkeeper, then I'll move on to Ian, and so on and so on until we have an entire team. So, Duncan, who was your goalkeeper of the World Cup? I think someone we talked about in the podcast earlier, I think Thibaut Courtois had an exceptional World Cup. Um, in particular, the game against Brazil, um, when you know Brazil should have gone through to that to the semi-final um, had an exceptional second half. I think Courtois had nine saves in that game. Um, in any normal circumstances, uh, Brazil score um, and a, a tired Belgian go out of the World Cup and we'd probably see, well, it would have been an amazing final, a semi-final, um, France-Brazil. And it could have uh, could have changed the, the destiny of the World Cup because you, you, you think Brazil could have made that final and you, you'd bet on them against Croatia. Ian, right back. I can't go past Benjamin Pavard of France, Johnny. Um, I think he's one of the surprises um, of the tournament. I, I believe that he um, had played mid only 12 caps before he was first choice right back for France in the finals. Um, his goal was sublime, but uh, more importantly, he played um, in a system that, that defended well, but attacked well in possession as well. He was always there. He was on the end of that 80-yard diagonal pass where it came from Pogba or from Griezmann. He was always there um, as the um, the outball uh, on the right-hand side when he needed to be in order to keep France in possession and ensure that they, they kept pressing forward on opponents. And so for me, um, no, no uh, question that Pavar is right back. Centre-back? Yeah, centre-back I would choose... Um... I think definitely the best uh, young centre-back in, in world football present, Rafael Varane, um, has been a, a top performer at the top level of football for a number of seasons now. Um, multiple Champions Leagues uh, uh, titles, now World Cup winner. And I think we heard a lot about John Stones um, in this World Cup, uh, about what a great defender he was turning into. I think you should just we should just note that the age difference between John Stones and Rafael Varane is less than a year, um, and if you look at the difference in performance um, and where, for example, Stones was was kicking the ball to the opposition and giving them chances to score in in the in England semi final, compared to it's you saw very few mistakes from Varane in that tournament, and that's why and that's you know one of the big differences between. France and England, um, their young players are delivering now. We're not, we're not talking about, oh, maybe in two years' time, this young team will be good enough to win. They deliver now, and they deliver at club and, and country level. A difficult one for me, Johnny, in terms of this department for Varane. I would certainly agree with Duncan and Varane. Um, I think the easy option would be to go with um, his France and national team, the AMTT. Um, I think obviously Dejan Lovren um, thinks he's one of the greatest central defenders in world football now. I would certainly would agree with that. And uh, I would say ask Loris Karius if he's still the greatest goalkeeper in the world, Dejan, uh, before you start making statements like that. So I'm going to go a little bit off, a uh, little bit left field and say Harry Maguire. Um, and I say that because I think he's one of the most improved players, uh, not just at the World Cup, but in the last season playing for Leicester City. I saw him play on several occasions. I thought he's been outstanding. Um, I think he showed that he's able to command both his own penalty area and the opposition penalty area. Um, his aerial threat is is abundant and accurate. 
and also um, he's able to play the ball out uh, with both feet as well. Not saying he's a finished article, and I agree with Duncan about you know the difference between John Stones and Varane and John Stones and, and Maguire, but I think Maguire was a real eye-opener, I think, for most people at the World Cup. So I'm going to go for, for, uh, for Maguire. Left-back, Duncan. Well, given we talked about the shortage of left-backs and uh, high-quality left-backs... Kieran Tierney, then, obviously. No, I, see, I was going to say, it's a shame, shame Kieran Tierney wasn't at the World Cup. For he was in spirit. He was in spirit. But, but it's a, I think this is actually a good example of how difficult it is to find good left-backs because it's probably the hardest position to pick in the team. Um, I think I would go for Lucas Hernandez. Um but more because he was he was solid throughout the top tournament without being exceptional, um, and and has a good element of a of attacking ability about him. But there there really wasn't an outstanding left back at this World Cup, which is why they're priced so highly in this transfer market. Okay, Ian, we're going to go for a single defensive pivot. So I'm looking for a central defensive midfielder sit in there and uh, patrol that area in front of the back four. I would sing the song, but I don't. I fear my French and my uh, lack of tune would offend everyone. So I'll just say Angolo Conte as the um, as a single pivot. I think he did not put a foot wrong as normal. He is the ultimate professional in terms of the way that he performs in every single game. Never gives the ball away. Tenaciousness in his defending, but doesn't give away free kicks in stupid areas. Doesn't get himself booked, and. I just think, he, as his teammates attested in that wonderful social media vid, uh, video, he was one of the unsung heroes. So for me, Conte was never under threat in that, in that um, central role. Okay, Duncan, so a slightly more attacking midfielder. I think the easy, easy and obvious choice, Luka Modric. Um, absolutely exceptional in this World Cup. Uh, just his ability to be in the right part of the pitch and, and be open to receive the ball uh, when the game is complicated around him, was uh, beyond anyone else. And then his use of the ball, uh, his range of passing, knowing which passes to choose, uh, and also stepping up in difficult moments. You know, missing missing a penalty in a, in a key knockout game, and then stepping up and, and putting one away in the penalty shootout. Um, yeah, if any single individual deserved to win this World Cup, then I think Luka Modric was that individual. Okay, Ian, same to you, central defense, uh, central midfield? I think um, our choices so far, Maguire um, accepted, uh, Johnny, reflect the fact that the, the two best teams contested the final. I don't think there's any doubt. Um, that there, was, there, were, there were no hard luck stories in this World Cup. The two best teams went through to the final, and I think this World Cup combined 11 is, is, is saying that. Um, I would be tempted to say Paul Pogba for this particular role, but I have to... I can't because Ivan Rakitic for me was absolutely outstanding. The way that he and Modric combined to um, drag games back uh, from uh, not unwilling positions, the absolutely dictated play in so many minutes of football in tournament um, situation that it was incredible. And Rakitic and Modric between them basically, I think, pulled Croatia out of the holes that they that they found themselves in. They constructed and directed wave after wave of attack, putting balls in the channels, balls outside, coming back into support, taking second and third balls, second phases. And Rakitic for me was you know, just brilliant. So I'm going to say Rakitic to go with Conte and with Modric in the, the midfield three. OK, Duncan, we need somebody, a tricky winger on the right wing. 
On the right wing, um, well, I was going to do the left winger for you, so let me do that because okay. I think. I as think. usual, Duncan making the rules up as he goes along. Terrible, terrible. Legend, terrible. legend. The way to do it. It's the only way to on a quick fire round. Um, I think Aiden Hazard has to be the left winger. Um, again, like Thibaut Courtois, I think you saw a player um, who wanted to prove himself in the World Cup stage, but it was also very well aware that if he had an exceptional tournament, the chances of a big move increased. Um, but he really was exceptional. Um, I think I uh, saw some st statistics for um, dribble completions, which is kind of a bizarre little statistic, but um, ahead of everyone else in any World Cup ever, which, which is quite outstanding in the modern game. I would say if it wasn't for Eden Hazard, you'd probably have to put a, you know an unsung individual, even Perisic, in there. Um, his, his contribution to Croatia's cause was immense and his ability to... Um, respond when it was really needed, uh, delivering goals and delivering uh, chances for his teammates was exceptional. And I think he, it, one of the players that probably surprised um, the world audience more than any other in, the, in performing a level beyond the expectation during this tournament. Ian on the right. Uh, again, I'm going to um, go outside of um, the two finals just for one last time and say Kevin De Bruyne, um, who I think was exceptional without um, necessarily being the most flashy player um, in the World Cup finals. Uh, his assists, his pass-making, his retention of possession <clears throat> uh, were all sensational. Um, also, his running on the ball as well. I think if we were, you know, making, you know, we are making this combined team up and uh, and if we're placing it up against, uh, you know, a combined team of 1970 or you know, one of the classic World Cups or, or 1986, then I think uh, this team so far, and especially with De Bruyne on the left side and Hazard on the right, would be exceptional. And finally, Duncan, the centre-forward. I think you, you, just, you can just split this between the, the two finalists. Um, again, probably a surprise in how good Mario Mandzukic was in this tournament, but, you know, epitome of that Croatian team. Uh, never... The, the, the cliche, never say die, but exceptional in, in coming up with the goods when it mattered in the tournament. Um, but if you have to pick the best talent and the best player, then it has to be Kylian Mbappé for that role. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're privileged in that we're going to have the opportunity to watch this guy who's still a teenager um, develop through his career because um, what he's done already in the game is, is incredible and could see something very, very special down the years. As it stands, the Transfer Window podcast, Team of the World Cup, is Courtois and Goal, Pavard at right back, left back Hernandez, Maguire and Varane in the central uh, defensive positions. Just in front of them is N'Golo Kante, and in front of him, uh, creating for us, we have Rakitic and Modric. Uh, with De Bruyne, De Bruyne and Hazard in front of them creating on the wings. I think we sort of decided that they would swap around because I think Ian, first of all, uh, wanted Hazard on the right and De Bruyne on the left and Duncan wanted them the other way around. So we're not going to argue about that. And we're just going to say at the tip of this is uh, Kylian Mbappe. So that is some team. Um, guys, I'm, it would be the quick fire round if I didn't throw in a curveball. And Ian, I'm going to start with you. Who was the player that disappointed you the most in terms of this World Cup? The guy who you expected a lot from and just didn't deliver? Ooh, that's a curveball. Um, so many. 
So many to choose from, Johnny, um, especially in the uh, the big teams. I mean, look, sorry, Neymar has to be my disappointment of the tournament. I do understand that he feels the weight of the Brazilian nation on his back when he pulls on that famous shirt, etc., etc. But I feel like the behaviour which we saw typified in performances for Paris Saint-Germain all season, i.e. mature, childish, and, you know, at times just downright embarrassing, um, became part of the World Cup and he made no friends and, in fact, probably made a fool of himself. And so, for me, um, despite the fact he did get a couple of goals and everything else, he just did not impress, did not um, excel. And, uh, and for me, yeah, Neymar was a player who was most disappointing. And you, Duncan? Um, I think Neymar's a, a reasonable choice for that. I think uh, Lionel Messi is a, is another um, option there in that, that this was generally regarded as his last chance to win a World Cup. And uh, for a lot of the, the tournament, he was missing in action. And um, we were hearing excuses about him. I think I think the, the, the biggest disappointment of the World Cup for me uh, won't come as a surprise to you, video assistant referees. I think the, what we saw in that final was an accident waiting to happen. Um, as Jose Mourinho said um, afterwards in his um, Russian television commentary, said that this will forever be reminded, re- remembered as the, v- the final of VAR. Um, we, we could only hope that it is the final, the end of VAR, because it just puts too much pressure on referees and we get too many um, decisions which aren't uh, following the protocol that was set out by FIFA and are changing the way football is played um, and refereed. Um, And that's not what VR was supposed to be about. Ian, do you agree with that sentiment? Uh, I'd say the finals showed um, up the difficulties and the complications of VAR. I've said in the past that I feel like um, VR has become um, a crutch um, and also a, a bind for the on-field official. Uh, I think the the intention. Let's just take that one example um, with the handball uh, in, in the in the final of the, of the World Cup. It was never in normal time or in anyone's opinion a hand-to-ball situation. The VR officials referred the referee, who I thought, by the way, was by far the best referee in the entire tournament. Anyway, he took no, um, you know, uh, any sort of silliness from anyone. He was very, very um, straightforward in all his decision making up until the final. But then I think the pressure got to him. He was asked to review it. He then made a decision and then went back again to see it one more time and then pointed to the penalty spot when it clearly was never a penalty by any realms of the way that we expect a game to be refereed, um, the way that we've all grown up without VAR, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not necessarily an opponent of VAR, Johnny, but um, I do think in those situations there's too much pressure put on the on-field match official, both to review and then to change his, to change his original decision um, based on what he saw on video evidence. And I think that is... Uh, going to be a massive issue and I do think that the fact that UEFA have refused to instate VAR for all Champions League games for next season is a very big signpost to the rest of world football that uh, it's not quite well it'll never be perfect but it's not quite even um, uh, suitable for service right now because I think that the lines upon which 
we uh, introduced it, i.e. clear and obvious mistakes, has been blurred by the fact that the referee is connected to the VR officials who suggest that he, refuse, he reviews a decision because they've seen it on their screen saying it might be a review, when actually fact the referee's already made a decision based on what he's seen less than 10 feet from this in itself. And then you're talking about referees who've been like, you know, they've been officiating for 30 years and probably have got a better than 95% strike rate in their decisions. So I'm, I'm sorry that these guys are being undermined by guys sitting in a you know, television studio effectively looking at replays over and over again, deciding that uh, you should review that. And I've, I, as I said, I do fear that this is, if we don't either restrict it or change the way in which that it's um, implemented, then we will lose um, the verity and experience of a, you know, incredibly capable and very, very good referees who are on field. Okay, and with that, Barry Duncan. Just say, um, Keith Hackett, the former Premier League referees um, chief, wrote a very interesting article about that where he identified what I think is a very key point. Um, you know, Nestor Pitana didn't give the penalty. He then had every member of the France team jumping at him and saying, it's handball, it's handball. He has the guys in the studio saying, you should have another look at it. Then he's expected to go to a video monitor with the biggest, with you know, 80,000 stadium, all the players, all the coaches watching him. 300 million people on television, Duncan. The biggest TV audience in the world waiting for him to make a decision. And the guys in the, the VAR studio select the angles for him to see. And you saw him walk away from the screen. They call him, he's called back to have another look and they show a slow motion from a different angle. Specifically says in the VAR protocol, you don't use slow motion to decide intent and handballs because if you use slow motion, it looks more, it's more likely to look intentional than not. So they broke their own protocol, but fundamentally the pressure on the referee and the, a querying of, of his instinctive decision, which, you know, at best you can say that was a 50-50 call. Maybe some guys give handball for it. It's certainly not a definite handball. It's certainly, the video certainly did not clearly show that a clear mistake had been made, which is the other part of the protocol that was broken. And this is a World Cup final. And, you know, Croatia were the better team at that stage. You handed a team who were a counter-attacking side with a huge amount of talent a 2-1 lead. The expectation is always going to be that they're going to win that match. It's, it's, just a, it's just sad that we, you know, what could have been, what was a good World Cup final, but what could have been an exceptional World Cup final was lost because of that. Okay, and with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor, so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account, at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account, so it's important... Uh, uh, sorry. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. I'm at Johnny McFarlane. If you want to follow us individually on Twitter, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. And more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at GarboSJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping on to iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us to reach as many listeners as possible. The bigger the community, the more we can give you. It's that simple. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. 
Until next time, thanks for listening.